Welcome to Calvary Chapel Elizabeth City's online sermon series. Join us this week for Philippians chapter 1, verses 7 through 11, with Pastor John King. Well, good morning. We uh, we're going to continue, of course, in the book of Philippians. This morning we're in the first chapter of Philippians. We're going to uh, do verses. We're going to kind of backtrack one verse. We're going to go verses 6 through 11. And uh, as you're turning there, just a reminder for today's message. Uh, as we continue our introduction to Philippians, it, it becomes pretty obvious pretty early that this church is very dear to Paul's heart. He wasn't aiming to correct their doctrine. Um, he, didn't, he wasn't trying to write to confront a sin issue among the church. But he simply opens up by saying that every time he thinks about them, he gives thanks to God and prays on their behalf. The reason for his deep affection towards them stems from how mightily God worked among them when he first came to the city. And we went through Acts chapter 16 last week. Uh, so if you want to kind of get a little background in your own uh, time to read, Acts chapter 16 covers all the events that took place when, uh, when Paul first came to that city. And not only that, but they had a continued faithful support over the years since then. You know, here he is writing this letter from prison. It's about 10 years later. Now today, we're going to see Paul continuing to express his heartfelt feelings towards them. And he's going to share with them now the content of how he actually does pray. You know, when you say, oh, I'm praying for you, you're in my thoughts and prayers. Today it's going to be nice because Paul's going to kind of explain, hey, this is how I'm actually praying for you. And this, this can, again, be a great pattern for us. We have many patterns in the scriptures on how to pray for one another. And this is one of the better ones. So let's look at uh, verse 6 through 11 today in first Philippians, Philippians 1. Verse 6, it says, Being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Just as it is right for me to think this of you all, because I have you in my heart, insomuch as both in my chains and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers with me of grace. For God is my witness, how greatly I long for you all with the affection of Jesus Christ. And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in knowledge and in all discernment, that you may approve the things that are excellent, that you may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ, being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ, to the glory and the praise of God. Let's bow our heads. Father, we thank you. It's, yes, the glory and the praise of God is the reason why we are here. And it's the reason why we study your word. So that our lives can be transformed. That our lives can be changed. So that we can be able to express a genuine Christian faith. And that only comes through you. And by the power of your Holy Spirit. I pray that it comes to bear in our hearts again today. Speak to us once again as you always do. And you're so faithful. Go before us as we study your word. 
We pray this all in Jesus' name. And everybody said, Amen. 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 So a little bit of a review from last week. We left off in, in verse 6. We're talking about Paul's confidence, but not Paul's self-confidence. Paul's confidence in God's power to change people. And that is so important for us to get a hold of. You know, one of the points from last week was Paul was confident of God's power. And I, I maybe you might remember, I challenged you and I challenged myself to say, am I confident of God's power to change people? Do I believe that? And if we say that we are, and we know that we're kind of under construction by God, God's working in our hearts, we know then that we need to be patient, don't we? And we also recognize that it's whose work? It's his good work in our lives. In fact, knowing that he is the perfect workman, that he is God, should actually make our prayers easier. Amen? Amen. We, I mean, we, we should be like, Lord, <laughs> you know, they're yours. <laughs> I'm yours, they're yours. Whatever's going on. And so we need a healthy and honest self-awareness of how God is working in us as well. Because a lot of times we're so focused on everybody else. You know, maybe we don't want to look at ourselves. But don't forget that not only is he changing others, but he's also changing you. Amen. There seems to be friction in our home, a concerned wife said to a marriage counselor. I really don't know what the trouble is. Friction is caused by one of two things, said the counselor. And to illustrate, he picked up two blocks of wood from his desk. If one block is moving in and one is standing still, then there's friction. Or if both are moving but in opposite direction, there's friction. Now which is it? I'll have to admit that I've been going backward in my Christian life. And Joe has really been growing. The wife admitted, what I need to do is get back into fellowship with the Lord. That's self-awareness. That's understanding that, yes, the Lord is working in this case of this husband, this fictitious husband, Joe. But the wife needed to recognize that she needs to let him work in her as well. So there's a lot of application in that verse. It's one of the reasons why I wanted to repeat it. Being confident of God's good work and that he will complete it. We not only do we learn patience, but also we should see encouragement. As we walk through life with our Christian brothers and sisters, with our husbands and wives, with our children, we should look for improvement, not perfection. We should look for improvement, not perfection. And when we see it, we should praise any improvement you see. You need to be encouragers to one another. As you praise the good, it automatically brings out more good in the other person I have found. You have found. Criticizing, however, brings people, brings out the worst, as I have found and you have found. But praising them brings out the best. I like what Chuck Swindoll said about this passage. He said, when I stop trying to play God in my own life and instead let him accomplish my spiritual growth in his own way, I'll look differently at the winds of strife that blow through my life. 
And while I'm at it, I need to stop playing God in other people's lives through constant worry, anxiety, and manipulation. What we need is to pray with confidence in every circumstance that comes our way and thank God for his promise to navigate us through it. So with that, we see Paul's affection, verses 7 and 8. He's confident of the good work that's being done, that the Lord will complete it, and now he expresses his affection. In other words, he says, I have you in my heart. And this is an important thing for us to learn today. He says, verse 7, Just as it is right for me to think this of you all, because I have you in my heart. He's saying it's right. It's, it's because duty demands it. To think this. Now to think, we know, is to hold an opinion of something. To judge. And he's saying, it is right for me, because I have you in my heart, to let you know, it's right for me to feel this particular way about you, which he's going to tell us here in a minute. And he gives the reason why. He says, because I have you in my heart. Um, you're, not, you're not just some you know, thing passing through my mind. I'm, I'm really seriously thinking about you and praying for you. You're in my heart. We talk about heart. The Greek word heart is cardia. Um, you know, go figure, right? Cardia. It's a constant remembrance. He says, when I have you in my heart, it's a constant remembrance. And it's a remembrance of steadfast affection. Now, the heart or this cardia, in the Greek, it refers to the middle or central part of anything in general. And here, this, this heart refers to the inward portion of a person's being. That's who they are. If the physical center of our human body is the actual heart muscle, then the moral and mental center of activity, this is our true character, the real you, and that's central to our very being. And the only one who can see this is God in full and complete. The only one who can see our center of our being. In fact, it's affected by God and seen by him at all times. And so we need to remember as spiritual beings created by God and born again in Christ that, you know, it's how he built us. He, he built us to see the deepest parts of our soul. And that's how he communicates so effectively to us. And it's also how God holds us accountable to him. We know in Romans, Paul explained this. How uh, Romans 2 verse 14, it says, When the Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do the things in the law, these, although not having the law, are a law to themselves. Paul, Paul is here, he's trying to explain that, you know, nobody has an excuse before God. Because God sees everything. And nobody has an excuse before God. And the reason is, is because God wrote his law on the conscience of everyone, of every person. So you have no excuse. So again, that's how God has built us. And so when we express ourselves in Christ, you know, it's, it's got a deeper understanding. I hope, hope you see that. But back to Paul's words. He says, just as it is right for me to think this of you all, because I have you in my heart. 
Now perhaps Paul was thinking of Lydia, the one who sold purple there in the city of Philippi, who came to know the Lord. Her and her family gave their life to the Lord right after Paul had witnessed and baptized her in the river. Perhaps he was thinking of the jailer and his family. Their whole family came to know the Lord and were baptized after that great miracle in the jail where the earthquake released them all, released all the prisoners. You recall that. And he could see their faces. These were the first converts in Philippi. He could recall the conversations they had. And you know, you and I, we, we also, you know this, we, we have thoughts, sometimes hundreds of thoughts come across our mind in a given day. And several people might cross our mind. And the question, I guess, need, you know, you kind of need to ask and you, you know it, you know how you react when a certain person comes across your mind. And I guess it's fair to ask, does our thoughtful recollection of others, um, does it promote thanksgiving? I mean, that's a good heart check, if you will. You know, people, there may be people in your past that you have hurt you terribly or you've offended them and you wish things could have been made right. Or when, as you walk in the Lord and as you accumulate some time on this, on this planet, uh, you have more memories and you also forget more things too, right? <laughs> but, you know, I guess it's just good for us to ask, what, what kind of things, when I think of a person, when I think of somebody, especially Christians and believers, and that's who he's talking to, he's really referring to fellow saints, what kind of recollections do I have? And do I give thanks? Because we're free to choose, actually, how we remember people in our thoughts, aren't we? I mean, it can be disappointment. It can be bitterness. It can be judgment. Or it can be thankful for those the Lord has put in our lives. And even the hardest memories of pain and regret can be used by God. We know this verse. Some of you know this verse. Forward and backwards, Romans 8, Romans 8, 28, right? He says, we know that all things work together for good to those who love God and to those who are called according to his purpose. So we're free to choose how we think about others. Now let's note an, kind of an important distinction concerning Paul's affection for, him, for these folks. We, we need to kind of See, okay, what, is there something unique about his affection towards them? And he says it here, he says, in so much as both in my chains and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. You see, Paul was imprisoned. He was in a Roman prison. There were times during Paul's imprisonment that he was sort of, uh, in, you know, on house arrest. But there were also times during Paul's imprisonment where he was chained to a Roman guard. Sometimes two. That's a pretty intimate setting and they would have to change, you know, the watch. I don't know, maybe it was every four hours. And Paul, of course, would get to witness to them. Boy, they must have loved that. And, and we know later in some of the letters that Paul says, you know, the household of Caesar has come to know the Lord because his ministry did not go away. The power of the Holy Spirit wasn't cut off because he was in prison. And he says, both in my chains and the defense and confirmation. You know, we, we hear a word that's used a lot in Christianity today. It's called apologetics. And the defense is apologia. That's a, that's a reason, statement, or argument. 
It's a verbal answer to those who would ask you what you believe and why you believe it. And it's an important thing to learn. I'm not necessarily saying that we all need to go enroll online to the, you know, online seminary and take a course in apologetics. You may want to do that. You may want to find a good book, a good textbook that teaches apologetics. Because if you're going to be out in the world, you're going to find yourself in a situation, and usually it's with those who are closest to you, right? Your family members, those who know you best, especially those who know you before you came to the Lord. That's the hardest ground there is. I will testify to that. And you need to let your emotions go as you speak to your loved ones and your relatives, but you need to articulate why you believe what you believe. And that's why we place such an emphasis on God's Word here in this church. But an hour a week with me, or, you know, 40 minutes with me, that's not going to cut it. You're going to have to study the Word on your own. And sometimes, you know, apologetics can be a help in that area. But Paul was in prison. He was saying uh, his defense and confirmation. This is what's sort of distinct about why Paul's expressing such, you know, heartfelt feelings for this church. Because here he was, he was in prison, and guess what he was doing? He was suffering on their behalf. He wouldn't have been in prison if he, had he not gone out for the case of Christ. And so he was suffering for their, on their behalf, and he would do it before the Emperor Nero and the Roman officials. And the outcome of Paul's presence and his, his hearing before Nero and the, or the officials would have a direct effect on this Roman colony in Philippi and that church. So yeah, this was a, a really important thing. But what we need to see here is that Paul was a man of love, and he's expressing that, but he was also a man of action, not just talk. And he says, you know, I, I, in so much as I'm in chains for the defense and confirmation of the gospel, I'm suffering on your behalf. He's not making excuses for it. He's not asking them to feel sorry for them. And, but he does tell them by way of encouragement, and you all are partakers with me. You are fellowshipping with me in this prison. They are actual participants with Paul. And how is that? Well, through their prayers and through their financial support, which was something that they were very, he would commend them of all along his missionary journeys. So when you look out there in the hallway and you see the pictures of the folks that we support at this church, and as you pray for them, you know what? You are participants. You are sharing in the fellowship with folks you may not even know. And he says... You are partakers with me of that wonderful word, grace. We know that grace is undeserved kindness. And we, we spoke last week of the effect of grace. You know, the saving grace, the equipping grace. And the grace he's talking about today, again, is empowering grace. Acts 4.33 we said that with, and with great power, the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and great grace was upon them all. As they gave witness and as these early apostles in the book of Acts turned the world upside down for Christ, it was through the grace of God that they did it. But it was also granted for them in Paul's case, and we're going to see it later on in this chapter in verse 29, 
You're actually giving grace to suffer for the sake of the gospel. That's not something that we're comfortable with. That's not something we honestly desire to suffer for the gospel. But that's something that we may be called, that Paul was called to do. And for those who are over in Russia, a ministry couple out there, John and Yvonne Lutz, who are over in the, you know, Russian. Who would want, you want to go to Russia right now with all that's going on in Ukraine? I mean, who's anxious to do that? Or how about a man who I can't even say his name, who goes to places he can't even tell us? Or how about the young lady who's up there in the university system in New York, in the, in the center of liberalism, okay? Speaking the gospel truth to those students. Or those in India, sponsoring pastors who are, you know, putting their life on the line because the predominant religion in India does not like Christianity at all. And it could cost you your, your life and your livelihood. So he says, in verse 29, we'll see it. He says, for you it has been granted on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, not only to believe in him, not only to have salvation, but also to suffer for his sake. Kent Hughes wrote this. He says, what must tie Christians together is this passion for the gospel. This fellowship in the gospel. Nothing else is strong enough to hold us all together. The gospel, the good news that in Jesus, God himself has reconciled us to himself, brings about a precious God-centeredness that we share with other believers. You take the gospel out, you take the, the preaching of the gospel, the teaching of God's word out of the church, the church is going to go who knows what direction and ultimately dissolve. So the thing, the glue that holds us together should be our love for Christ and our love for the gospel and in turn our love for one another. But it's based in Christ. It's based in the gospel. And he says it, now he says it very strongly here in verse 8. He says, for God is my witness. How greatly I long for you all with the affection of Jesus Christ. God is my witness. My witness is that, that word martus. It's similar to martyr. It's one who gives their wit, a witness of their life. You know, that's what we say. True Christianity can be read by the life that you live, not the words that you speak. And so God himself has witnessed Paul's genuine life and actions. King James Version said, God is my record. That's the thing we should be able to say. No matter what comes against us, God is our record. And we stand or fall in that. He says, how greatly I long for you with the affection of Jesus Christ. Now the word affection in the Greek is, doesn't translate to what we understand as affection, okay? What it means in the ancient language is the bowels, you know, the deep inside your heart. You know how your stomach churns sometimes? And this is, you know, the Greek being translated over to English to say affection. And this is where the Greeks, they regarded our, our center of our body, you know, your, your intestines and all these places. This is the seat of the more violent passions, if you will, for the Greeks. But the Hebrews saw it as the seat of tender mercies. 
different cultures. The way I think of it, when I, when I think of this affection or I think of empathy or sympathy, which kind of relates to that, is do you remember the time you were in school and you started to, maybe at some point in your, your growing up, and you were in the public setting in school or wherever you were. For me, I just remember seeing a kid who, you know, dropped all of his books and everybody was making fun of him and just something struck me. I thought that was so mean and my, my heart kind of went out to him and I could kind of feel it in my gut that this guy was being, uh, you know, mistreated. It was, you know, it wasn't just a, a head emotional anger or anything like that. It was just, you know, my heart went out to him. And you could probably talk about all kinds of things that, in your life that bring to mind how you really felt for somebody uh, beyond the normal thinking process. And this is where Paul's coming from. How greatly I long for you with all affection of Jesus Christ. And so this is, this is kind of incredible for most of us because we're not used to this kind of affection towards other believers. Let's be honest. We certainly know in our hearts and minds the affection receive, we receive from Jesus personally. Most important thing, that we have fellowship with the Lord and know Him personally. But Paul is so sincere that he actually calls God to witness that what he is saying is true. In other words, he declares it as a spiritual reality. And that can be a challenge for us. Now notice, of course, that this this is not a sinful affection, which, you know, we don't want to go down that road, or just a sugary, sentimental affection that sort of comes naturally. No, this is the affection of tender mercies based on the agape love of Jesus Christ. In fact, if you're filled with the Spirit, you have the fruit of the Spirit, the first word that's used is love. Galatians 5.22. And having that Spirit of God also enables you and I to obey. John 13, 34, he says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. So we obey because it's God's love working in us and flowing through us. It's not our love. It's not our sentimental love or our fleshly love, sometimes lustful. You know, we can misplace that. No, it's God's love. Romans 5.5, 5, it says, now hope. Now, how do we know it's God's love? Well, look at what it says in Romans 5.5. 5. Now hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out into our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. So we need to recognize the source of this agape love. We know it, but these are basic things of the Christian faith that we must be reminded of. And so Paul writes, he says, I have you in my heart. Now this explains why they have such a great relationship. If, if, uh, if you're a fellow believer like Paul, and you're held together by the gospel, then we can do the same thing in our lives and in our fellowship. Perhaps you've heard the old saying, if you don't keep people in your heart, they will get on your nerves. We have to put people in the right place in our heart and mind. Not to manipulate, but to be right and in line with God. 1 Peter 1.22 Since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit in sincere love of the brethren, love one another fervently 
with a pure heart. So how about you and I? When we think of each other and the memories that we share, does it bring joy? And I believe it does. You know, when you guys think about the things you've done together, the fellowship times you've had, does it bring joy? I, I, would, I want to say that it does because you still come to this church. <laughs> you still fellowship. You still choose. You're not here to play church. You're not here to put on a show. Do we find joy in remembering one another before God's throne of grace? Hey, that's a new dimension, isn't it? Sometimes we pray out of obligation, but do you and I found, find joy in that, as Paul did? And if not, if not, unfortunately, it could be that you're holding yourself back. And your circumstances are unknown to me, uh, probably, unless we were to talk, but you need to do some talking with God. You need to spend some time with the Lord and ask Him, why is it not a joy for me to lift others up in prayer? Why is it not a joy for me to remember people in my life, my brothers and sisters? So having said that, now Paul is going to explain through his prayers, verses 9 through 10, he's going to talk about prayers and what he's praying for. He's asking for two things here and then a third thing. First of all, he says he's going to pray that they grow in love and that they make the right choices. That they grow in love and make the right choices. Keep in mind, Paul is writing from a prison. He doesn't know each and every person's specific problem that they're dealing with in life. He doesn't know all of their illnesses, the suffer, the loss they may have suffered. He doesn't know the things that they're dealing with on a day-to-day -day basis. But he knows that, hey, I can always pray that my brothers and my sisters would grow in love. And I can always pray that they will make the right choices in life. And so can you and I. We can always do that for one another. So he says in verse 9, And this I pray. So again, remember, every time they come to mind, he comes to the Lord. And he thanks the Lord. He says, I pray that your love may abound still more and more in the knowledge and all discernment. So he's praying for two things. Love that grows, that abounds through maturity, and agape love that is directed through knowledge and insight. You see, with God, you get the whole picture. It's not just emotions, but he adds our intellect into it as well. He created all of it. We're the ones that made a mess of it. Amen. <laughs> oh. Your love may abound still more and more. That means to increase, that to, to grow, to superabound. Uh, one writer kind of pointed it out. He said, this is sort of, you know, stunning the way this writer put it. Because love here in this, where we're at right now, it has no object. Um, he doesn't say that your love for God may abound more and more, nor does he say that your love for one another may abound more and more. This is because Paul prayed that love would overflow both up to God and out to each other in limitless abundance. The reason Paul understood that, and we can apply our understanding of the Bible here, is because of the Ten Commandments. The first four 
of the two tablets of the Ten Commandments, they command love for God. You know, this is a, a, your, 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 your love for God are those commandments. And then the second, or the, the second tablet, the sixth other of the Ten Commandments calls for love for others. So vertical love first to God and horizontal love second. So Paul just saying, you just, I just want you to grow more and more. I pray that you would grow more in your love for God, more in your love for each other, more in your love for God, more abound, like super, like continue to go. I mean, there's no limit, honestly, in that respect. But at the same time, you see, you can walk and chew gum at the same time, can't you? Not just in your mind, but spiritually, in your understanding. And it says, and at the same time, there's a shape to this love. There's a shape to this love. And you say, well, how, how is that? How so, you might ask. Well, I'm glad you asked. He says that I wish and I pray that your love would abound to God and to one another in knowledge and all discernment. In knowledge and all discernment. Knowledge, epignosis, means precise and correct. And then discernment means perception. Not only by the senses, but also by the intellect. Now, how does this work? One illustration says that we should, it would picture a river overflowing its banks. Love being that river. How many songs have been written, you know, that, that metaphor, that, that thing. But love being the river, the river's overflowing its banks. But the two banks that form the path are knowledge and judgment. Knowledge and judgment. And that reveals the direction that love should flow. So there's a connection between overflowing and abundant love and growing personal knowledge of God. And it provides us with insight on how we should pray in our everyday lives. Living our everyday lives. And so I like what Chuck Swindoll says here, again, he says, Paul is not telling the Philippians to let their love blind them to the truth and righteousness so they end up overlooking sin and compromising holiness. That's a false interpretation of love that we often see in the world today. You know, don't tell me who to love. You know, just everything's wide open and you overlook a whole bunch of things. True Christian love is guided by the best interests of others with true knowledge and discernment. Love learns to spot the phony, the wrong, and the evil. And it learns to approve the things that are excellent. And that's where we go in verse 10. Paul now is praying not only that their love would abound, but they would also make the right choices. They would make the right choices. He says that you may approve the things that are excellent. Verse 10. Now to approve is to examine, to scrutinize something. And he says approve the things, examine the things, scrutinize things that are excellent. Now again, the word means to differ. And what he's saying is learn how to tell one thing apart from the other. Don't be fooled by things that you see just at face value understand that things are different, that, you know, you have to understand how to separate things through God's wisdom and to try to discern what is best.
that you may be sincere and without offense until the day of Christ. So the result of this scrutiny, you know, when we think about as we pray, you know, and, and Paul just says, I, you know, he said it in a general sense, but we're saying, when I pray for my son or daughter, when I pray for my loved one, when I pray for my wife or my husband or my, my neighbor or my law, whoever it is, I want to think about what would be best. And sometimes I don't know what's best, but I would ask God to do his best work. But sometimes I'm given a choice of what's best. Do we give our kids anything they want every time they want it? No. So we want to, we want to learn and have the Lord work in our hearts to be able to discern these things. And, you know, I can give you examples, but really it comes down to how we apply it in our situation on a day-to-day -day basis. Amen? Amen. Our growing love for others means that we look at what is best for them that might mean restraining our liberty for their sake. Again, sometimes we have to give up the things that we have the freedom to do in order not to stumble others. You know, people are watching. Uh, parents, you know your kids are watching. They see everything you do. Um, people in our, in our society, um, oftentimes if you are outward in your faith and you proclaim Christ and they don't particularly like to hear that or they may not like you, but they really don't like the Christ in you, they're going to look for ways to make your religion, your belief, whatever they want to call it, to look like a mockery. And so sometimes we have to curb our freedom in order not to stumble them. And I'm not going to give you a list of those things. I'll let you speak to the Lord about that. You guys know, you read your Bibles, you know what I'm talking about. But he says here, till, till the day of Christ. In other words, the whole thing is, we are living our lives with the expectancy of Jesus' return. That he would call his church home. Or that we know that our life expectancy could be cut short at any moment. We know that we are not guaranteed anything, our next heartbeat or our next breath. We could be called into his presence at any moment. And so we live our lives until the day of Christ. We are ready for his judgment seat. We are ready until he returns. Ephesians 4, 31 and 32. Here's a, here's a way to make yourself ready. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. In other words, really, really put it aside. And be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. It's often said in our society, and you know, again, this is so many songs, so many books, so many poems, you know, love is blind. And what we've seen so far is, no, love is not blind. One of the examples uh, of, of our culture and what happens in our culture, uh, there's, a, there's a new show. I have not seen it. It's a dating show. It's called Love is Blind. It's really a mockery. It's, it's really a mockery of the idea that love is blind. And it's super popular. It's, it's starting into its fourth and fifth, fifth season is scheduled. And this particular show... Uh, follows a social experiment where single men and women look for love and get engaged all before they meet the, the other person. 
And then they start a 10-day dating period with a prospective couple. They, they extend a marriage proposal. Then they meet face-to-face. -face. <laughs> you know, all this stuff goes on. You know, love is blind, right? Funny, ha-ha. They have a four-week period that includes a retreat, a temporary apartment, time to meet the family. They make wedding plans. But then this, get this, and this is where all the drama, I guess, builds up in this, this TV show, is that finally at the altar... Okay, the day, the drum roll, right? At the altar, each participant decides right then and there whether they're going to say, I do. And of course, you know, after three seasons, there have been 17 couples on this show. Six actually got married. Only four of them are actually still married. Uh, the rest of them split on their wedding day. Most have separated or divorced or never made it there. Love is blind, and that kind of love is not only blind, but it's stupid. And so, you know, you can say this, we, we got to be careful on how we take our popular culture and things like all you need is love. I like the Beatles, by the way, and sayings that love is blind or even a church in the church where we sing of reckless love. No, it's not. No, it's not. But this lack of godly love and discerning love has certainly left a wake of destruction, hasn't it? But only God, and he can fix it. That's the beautiful thing about it. Nobody has gone so far that they're beyond redemption. Nobody's gone so far that they're beyond forgiveness until you die or you deny Christ all your life. And so nobody's perfect, and God can fix those things. He can heal the brokenhearted. Christian love is not blind. It's not reckless or shapeless. Our minds and our hearts work together, says Warren Wiersbe, so that we have discerning love and loving discernment. Yes. So Paul is praying for growing and discerning love. And you say, well, how do I do that? How do I do that? Well, three things if you're taking a note, if you're writing any of this down. Stay, first of all, connected to Jesus. Because apart from Jesus, you and I can do nothing of any value. It's fruitless work. The next thing is we need to learn how to walk in the Spirit. We need to be Holy Spirit filled. We need to be Holy Spirit led by the fruit of the Spirit. You guys see Galatians 5, 22 and 26. You've seen this before. That's, that's the fruit of the Spirit. And next you need to walk in the Word. Colossians 3.16. He says, Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. So stay connected to Jesus. Walk in the Spirit and walk in the Word. And again, keep in mind that there are proper limits to our expression of love we don't just give our children anything they want. We have to have knowledge and discernment of what's best. And finally, in verse 11, as we close, Paul's prayer, now he, he prayed, you know, that they would have love that would abound, that they would have discerning love, but he also prayed for mature Christian service. And this comes back to what we just said a minute ago, that you would be filled and fruitful. And that's what he says. Verse 11, being filled with the fruits of righteousness which are by Jesus Christ. To be filled is to make full of spiritual possessions. The fruits of righteousness is visible evidence of God's work in a person. And what does that result in? What does fruit result in? We know what it looks like. What does it result in? It re results in integrity, things like virtue, a pure life, uprightness, 
correct thinking, you know, all the areas where God's working in us, correct feelings and actions. That's how it looks. And that's Paul's prayer. When you talk about spiritual fruit, it's been pointed out that as you look at a fruit tree, notice a fruit tree, it does not make a great deal of noise when it produces its crop. It merely allows the life within it to work in a natural way and then fruit is the result. So this isn't some contest of who's more spiritual, who produces the best fruit. Let the Lord work in that. He says, being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ. Again, as we said, John 15, 4 and 5. Abide in me and I in you. And as a branch cannot bear fruit of itself, unless it abides in the vine, neither can you, unless you abide in me. Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, for without me, again, you can do nothing. And the conclusion is, all of that is to the glory and the praise of God. Amen. The glory and the praise of God. So as we conclude for today, I would encourage you, you know, uh, aside from the good things that we pray for our loved ones, the necessary things that we pray for health and success, help with the current situation or concern, Paul also showed us how to pray for our brothers and sisters. Remember, you and I, those of you who are together in this room, all believers, we're going to spend eternity together. Amen. So why not want to, you know, just Amen. go and pray. Pray that they grow again in agape love. Pray that each other, pray, pray this for me. I'll pray this for you. Increasing in the knowledge of God revealed in Jesus. Praying that I make the right decisions. I will pray that you, in a general sense, make the right decisions in life. That you would grow in discernment and be able to choose what is excellent and what is best. And I would pray, and I would ask you to pray for me, that I be filled with the fruits of righteousness, being made ready for Jesus to return for his bride. Amen? Amen. Well, Father, we thank you for all that you do. And we ask, Father, that you would simply go before us today as we close our service. Once again, you've graced us, you've blessed us, you've moved our hearts in a way that uh, I pray is, is making us to be more like you. That we're being conformed in your image. But today, I, I pray that we've been encouraged. I pray that we've learned a new meaning for true joy. For the joy of fellowship, and not only that, for the joy of suffering, if that be the case. For the joy of praying for an abounding love among one another for learning how to pray for discernment. All those things, Lord, that we covered today, I pray that we would apply them to our lives. So go before us now. Uh, you've, you've given us a beautiful day, Lord. I pray that we would go out and enjoy it. Enjoy our time with our family and our loved ones. And Lord, we thank you once again for all the blessings that you give us. We pray this now in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Well, you guys have a wonderful day in the Lord, and we look forward to seeing you again next time. Thank you for joining us today for Calvary Chapel Elizabeth City's online sermon series. Join us next week as we continue through the Bible, book by book, verse by verse, line by line. God bless.